Uh, every year at the, in the first Sunday of the year when I'm preaching, I, I like to kind of uh, do a, a sense of what I believe God has sent for that year. I've been doing it for years. I think I started in 2020, which was an interesting year to do it. And uh, in 2020, I declared that I saw a great shaking coming and uh, all sorts of things. I saw turbulence. I saw... Uh, uh, running battles in the streets of America as race issues came to the surface. I saw all of that. I, I, if you go back to the first Sunday in, in 2020, you'll be able to watch some of that. And, uh, and over the last few years, and I've, I've been looking at Isaiah 6, wanting to declare that God is on the throne and he's still on the throne and he's sovereign and he rules and he reigns. And, uh, and this year I came before God over the last few weeks. I said, Lord, what do you want to say? Because God wants to prepare his people. Our God is a God who speaks. Jesus said this before he went back to heaven. He said, when he the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what is hears. he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, part of the role of the Spirit of God is to let the people of God know what lies ahead. We can call that prophecy, we can call it whatever you want, but part of the role is to prepare God's people Because God knows the end from the beginning. God is never taken by surprise. God is never in the throne in heaven going, oh no, I didn't know that was going to happen. What am I going to do, Gabriel? God always knows and he wants to let his people know. One so that we can be prepared, one so that we can pray, and one so that when things happen in the world around us, we're not shaken, we're not disturbed, we're not all over the place like everyone else, but we can stand firm, we can stand bold, we can stand courageous, and we can stand in faith, knowing that our God in heaven is still sovereign and he is Lord. And so it's okay to ask him, what is the year ahead? I don't want to make it hyper-spiritual, I don't want to use cliches, I've been so conscious of that, but I have wanted to to speak into what, uh, just four, uh, the title's the sermon's called Five Words, but I've only four, I've decided, because it was getting too long. Um, four words for 2023. I, I do this in my own life. I, I say, God, what are you doing here? When things are happening around us, I did it during COVID, I did it over the last few years, I'm doing it at the minute with all the stuff in Ukraine and the economy. And I say, God, I know what the BBC is telling me, and I know what all the people on social media are telling me, whether they're people who believe everything and in, 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 in the mainstream media or whether they're the wackies who think that uh, her wearing ten hats and believe uh, everything. I, I see what they're all saying, but God, what are you saying? What is your perspective? What is heaven's perspective on what is going on in our world? And as I did that this year, I felt him lead me to a passage which I wasn't expecting. First Samuel 13 and into 14. It wasn't what I, I thought we would be in. But as I've studied it and prayed about it and He's given me four or five words that I think will help us begin to understand what's going on in our world and will really help us to navigate through the next 12 months. So if it's your first time here, this is a little bit different this morning. Next week we'll be back to our usual programming, but today I want to do something a little bit different and that is to speak a little bit prophetically into uh, what uh, I believe lies ahead. And the first word, some of these words are going to sound negative, I'm sorry, but you know, it's a bit like Henry. They told us he was happy, but we knew he wasn't. Okay, and so I'd rather, I'd rather uh, not sugarcoat this. The first word the Holy Spirit gave me was shortage. You don't need to be prophetic, but to, to understand that we're living in a time of shortage. We're living in a time when, when there's not as much as there used to be, uh, and I, 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 I believe we're going to experience more shortages. This year, I began to speak about this about two and a half years ago. Some of you who maybe follow me on social media will know that I, I had three words uh, a few years ago that the Lord gave me. And the first one was shaking. 
that we were going to enter a shaking. And I believe that obviously happened in 2020. But then the next year, the Lord gave me the word sifting. The shaking was going to continue, but there would be a sifting, particularly in the church, but also in the political realm. And we have seen that in the church worldwide. We've seen leaders step down. We've seen uh, stuff come to the surface, things be exposed, particularly in those mega churches. But uh, generally, we have seen a sifting, and that is going to continue. So with the shaking... With the sifting, and both of those are going to continue. And then last year I said I felt, uh, a few years ago I felt that the, the next thing after that was the squeezing. That there would be a squeeze. And I said that at a time when the economy was booming, when there were more jobs than could be filled, uh, when everybody was, because uh, we hadn't went on holidays, we hadn't travelled, we hadn't done, eaten out, and everybody had plenty of money. But I really felt that the next thing was a squeezing that we would experience. And, uh, and so we have the shaking, we have the sifting, and we have the squeezing. And that is where we're at right now, and I believe that the squeezing and the shortages are going to continue with us as well as more shaking and sifting. Sorry about that. Uh, don't, don't shoot the messenger, but uh, I don't see things getting better anytime soon. Look at First Samuel 13 with me. Uh, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their ploy points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for a sharpening ploy points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and repointing goads. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds expensive to get your goads repointed. Uh, three, two, a third of a shackle. I don't think I would pay that. But, uh, so on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. And so there's a situation right now of war and conflict here. Okay? Between Israel and the Philistines. And this has been going on for a while. But at this stage, Israel have been overwhelmed by the Philistines. There's a shortage of the necessities of life. That's the, the, the tools they use for farming. There's massively inflated prices for the basic things they need to get food. I mean... Like I said, to get your goads repointed is, is severely overpriced. And as a, as a whole army, they've only two swords to share among them all. That's not a great situation to be in. It would be like uh, the, the Ukrainian army saying, who's going to use the gun today, guys? Uh, you know, because there's two, there's, there's, there's massive army coming against them and they, they have two swords. Uh, it's a picture of shortages and disruption and desperation and fear for the future. Doesn't that sound a wee bit like today? I know the Bible, some people say it's irrelevant. That sounds pretty relevant to where we're at today. The squeeze will impact everyone. We're in this squeeze. But you know who I really, I alluded to this a minute ago? The squeeze that we're seeing right now, and and the food bank people have told me this, it's not the very poorest in society. It's the next level up. It's not the people who live in housing, executive houses, and are on the dole. Because their life doesn't change that radically. It's the people who were just getting by, paying their mortgage, going to work every day, have a young family, and suddenly they find that their heating bill has gone up, their gas and electricity has gone up, their their petrol has gone up, their rent has maybe gone up, their mortgage has gone up. They're the people who this will affect most. 
They're the people that the food bank, or that's why actually they want to use here, because we're close to the motorway, and you're going to get a lot of people maybe working in different places in the area, that, that they'll be able to stop here. This is a good location for people. After, that's why we're doing it in the afternoon. People coming home from work who are maybe struggling to put food on the table for their children or to feed themselves. We'll be able to stop in here and get a box full of groceries. And we'll be able to interact with them and get to know them over time. That's what we want to do. It's not just about giving out groceries. It's about relationship. And that's the people, whoever God brings along our path, that we want to be able to, to give and resource and bless and, 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 and make sure um, that they have enough. That's why we're seeing all these strikes you notice there are a few strikes going on. I mean, we were never so happy to see the bin men come back recently. Sure, we weren't. You know, Ben. I just wanted to hug every bin man that came down our street. Um, postman. That's why we didn't get our presents until after Christmas. Um, we got home and my Christmas cards that I'd bought had arrived uh, yesterday. And uh, But we're seeing all these strikes. The nurses and, and the health service, you know, they're offering them maybe 2 3%, but inflation's 10%. And they're saying, we can't live. This isn't enough. And so we're going to see more of that disruption. We're going to see more of that happen. And it's going to be a year of disruption as people feel this squeeze. We're going to enter a long recession. Sorry to say it, but it's happening. And we're going to see a lot of shops close, which I am sad about in one hand, but I'm just praying that it's one unit that Hope Church can move into as well. Just keep it honest with you. I don't want to see any businesses close and we bless the businesses. But if one does close, we will be on it like a bonnet. And... uh, we're going to see house prices fall. We're going to see unemployment rise. I'm sorry, but a few years ago there were, it seemed that uh, a lot of people who, particularly in different industries, were selling, they couldn't get employees. Some of you are employers, you'll tell me that, that you couldn't get good. Uh, that's going to change. Uh, we're going to see uh, unemployment rise and we're going to see more shortages of certain foods and things that we take for granted. And I'm going to say something here that you can hold me to. I believe we're going to see contamination of some foods maybe animals, maybe water in some places, and that's going to cause a shortage. We may see uh, another war breakout. I mean, who knows that China wants to invade Ukraine? Who knows that Iran wants to hit Israel? And all of that will affect all of this. Again, I don't want to be Nancy negative here, but it's just the reality of the world we're living in. And God wants to prepare his people for what's coming so that we're not taken off guard. It's not a pretty picture, but for us as God's people, we will be able to make a difference. Practically, by by giving them food, by meeting their physical needs, but also spiritually, because at times of, of upheaval and disruption and chaos and calamity and fear, people turn to God. They do. When everything's going well, people don't think they need God. But when the world starts to fall apart, people turn to Jesus. People are looking for hope, and we have hope. It's even our name, and his name is Jesus. And this will be an incredible opportunity in the year ahead for you personally and your own friendships and relationships and work colleagues and neighbors, and for us as a church to engage people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only gospel that transforms, the only gospel that offers any hope. So the first word is shortage. The second of four is leadership. I was going to call this alignment or realignment, but I've decided to go with leadership. Leadership. 
The nation of Israel is in a mess. They have no weapons. The Philistines are attacking from all angles. They can't afford the basic necessities of life. What is their king doing? Is he getting the troops ready? Is he trying to make weapons? Is he strategizing on how to win the battle? Let's see what Saul is doing at this time. 14 verses 2 to 3. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was born in Ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. So Saul is in Gibeah, that's his hometown. In the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the shortages, in the midst of the crisis, Saul has retreated back to his hometown, to where he feels safe, to where he feels secure, and he's hiding under a pomegranate tree. He's doing everything he can to avoid conflict. He's as overwhelmed as everyone else. Rather than confronting the situation, he's putting his head in the sand and hoping the whole thing goes away and pretending there's nothing wrong. He's just chilling away from the hot sun under a tree, trying to maintain what he has, keep his head down, trying to not rock the boat. By this stage, we have seen that Saul's greatest weakness is that he is a people pleaser. He fears people and he's more concerned with what people think than he fears God. He's an insecure people pleaser. He wants to look good more than he wants to be good. And even here he's trying to look spiritual. We've told this wee phrase that he's got the ephod with him. The ephod was this uh, this breastplate that contained um, stones that God used to guide his people, to direct his people, uh, to tell them what to do. And so here's Saul, the king, sitting on the tree with 600 men and he's trying to look spiritual. He's trying to look like he's seeking God's will. God, what do you want me to do? Lord, what's your will for my life? What, what's the next step? The thing was, Saul already knew God's will. He knew what God wanted him to do. Because right at the start of his kingship, God had made that clear. Look at verses 9, 16. Uh, he will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. His calling was to fight. His calling was to lead the people of God against their enemies and be victorious. His calling was to take the land. So while this prayer meeting under a pomegranate tree might look really spiritual, it's actually an excuse for passivity and for procrastination and for disobedience to what God has already called him to do. He's avoiding the hard decisions. You know, I'm all for prayer. I listened to Jamie's talk last week and I was yes and amen to every single word of it. We are a church of prayer. We are going to be a people of prayer. We believe in the power, not of prayer, but of the God who answers prayer. And I believe that as we come to the throne of God this year, we are going to see, as we have seen already and spoke about it already, we're going to see our prayers answered in incredible ways. So I am all about prayer. Please do not hear. This is not contradicting last week. I agree with every single word last week. This is an addition to last week because sometimes here's what we do. We say I'll pray about it, which means I don't really want to do it. We say I'll pray about it, which means I can't think of an excuse right now, so I'll come back to you in a few days once I've thought of one. When God tells us to do something and we don't want to do it, it's amazing how spiritual we can get at times. It's amazing how we'll, you know, and we don't pray about it. We just take four days and come back and go, the Lord isn't leading me to do it, I'm afraid. The Lord isn't leading me to help with the kids' ministry. The Lord isn't leading me to, 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 to obey him in this area. The Lord isn't leading me to give. Oh, I just don't feel led. 
Sometimes we pray about stuff that God has already told us what to do. We just don't like it and we don't want to do it. And so we're trying to put things off for as long as possible. When God has made some things clear, we don't need to pray for clarity. We need to pray for obedience. Of course, there are times when we need guidance. We do need to seek God's will. But let's not spiritualize disobedience to what he's already made plain and clear. And I just want to, at the start of this year, ask you, is there something in your life that God has told you to do that you're putting it off? And he keeps bringing it back, and he keeps bringing it back, and you keep putting it off, and you're not doing it, or you're trying to spiritualize it. I want to say to you, do what, if you're feeling stuck, it's probably because you haven't obeyed the last thing God told you to do. I know in my own life that's when I've felt stuck, and I've got stuck, and sometimes it's been for a long time. It's because I'm waiting for God to tell me the next thing, and he's saying you didn't obey the last thing. So why would I tell you something new? Obedience is a big deal to God. It's a really big deal. I know Christians today, and we just kind of think we can obey when we feel like it, and when we don't, we, you know. No, it's not about convenience. It's about commitment. It's about saying, God, you are God. I am not. I know this might not make sense. I know this seems ridiculous, and I know this is hard. But I'm going to obey, because obedience always brings God's blessing. Let me repeat that. Obedience always brings God's blessing. It may not immediately look like blessing, but I've been following Jesus now. This is my 33rd year. I became a Christian when I was one. And, uh, and I can say to you that in 33 years of walking this walk, I have disobeyed and it has made me miserable, and I have obeyed and it has brought blessing. Every time, without exception. It's been hard, it's been challenging. But every time you obey God, I promise you, he promises you in his word, obedience always brings blessing. And disobedience kind of doesn't. I'm just saying to you. I know we live under the rule of grace. But when you disobey God and choose to disobey God, you kind of remove yourself from under his blessing. He doesn't lift it off you, you just remove yourself. Because his blessing is under obedience. Saul was the leader of God's people. He was supposed to be inspiring courage in the fighting men. But he's just as fearful as everyone else. And fear is contagious. Boy, have we seen that over the last three years. Fear is contagious. A chapter earlier, we're told that Saul had 33,000 fighting men. 33,000. Now we're told he's got 600 men with him under the pomegranate tree. Where have they all gone? We're told actually. Look at verses uh, 6 to 7, chapter 13. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and the army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. When the men and women that God has called to lead his people, who are, when the men and women who God has called to lead his people are just as fearful as everyone else, then everyone else loses heart. A fearful world needs a bold and courageous church. A fearful world needs bold and courageous Christians. And we'll get to that in a second. This pressure has revealed the cracks in Saul's life. You see, when everything's going well, you can coast. 
But when pressure comes, it reveals what's inside us because we're all like tubes of toothpaste, as I say. When we're squeezed, what's inside comes out. And we're seeing in our world a failure of leadership being exposed. That's why we had three prime ministers in what? Six weeks? We're seeing a major failure of leadership in our world right now. I mean, you look around our world right now, how many leaders would you go, I would follow them? I mean, Rishi's probably doing his best, but I'm not overly thrilled by him, I've just got to say. We pray for him. We're meant to pray for our leaders. But I can't say I'm delighted. We've seen so many high-profile church leaders step down in the last two years. Some of you will know that, some of you won't. Some of the major church leaders in the world of Christendom have had to step down, or they've been forced to step down, because things have come to the surface that they've been hiding for years. Some of you know that better than others. When the pressure is on, the cracks begin to show. And there's a little phrase I've been using for a few years, the changing of the guard. There's a changing of the guard taking place in leadership in every sphere and in every area and every arena right across the globe. A changing of the guard. There's a shift happening from the old guard to the new guard. And there's a tension involved in this shift. We see it on a worldwide scale. Those of you who watched the news this week, it took how many? 16 attempts to elect a House Speaker? How embarrassing. Like, after the tent, you'd kind of step aside. I'm probably not the most popular guy in it. But you know what it was? This guy thought he was a shoo-in. Everybody assumed that it would be a 100% vote, but there was a group of 20, 21 people who just said, we're not going to go this way anymore. Whether they were right or wrong, I'm not saying. But what I'm saying was that there were a group of people who just went, he is tainted by politics, he's been corrupted by the system for too long, and we're not going to go with this. We're saying it... Treading on water. We're seeing it with the royal family, aren't we? That book comes out tomorrow. What's it called? Spares. Spares. Spare. You know, whatever you think of Harry and Meghan, and I'm sure you all have different views that I'm not going to get into. I'm sure some of you watched the Netflix show and like me, you were torn because you, you were like, I kind of get it. Whatever you think of them, do you know what it is? It's a new generation emergence and we don't want to do things the way they've always been done. We understand there's traditions, we understand there's rules, we just don't want to do it like that anymore. And again, whatever you think about that, that's okay. I have mixed emotions about it. But it is a display in this sense of a new generation coming up and they're looking at the generation that's gone before and we want to honour them and we want to respect them and we want to say... We want to build upon them, but we don't want to do things just like they have done them. We see it in the church. I have seen it in the church over the last few years. I have found it really hard, I'm being really honest, to watch my own denomination, to watch other church leaders who I looked up to, and just how they've handled some things. There's a changing of the guard taking place. And we're experiencing it on a global scale. It used to be there was one dominant power in the world, America. Countries now are saying, we don't want to be ruled by one country. And you're starting to see pushback. You're starting to see pushback against that. There's a shift happening. There's a changing of the guard. Some of it is good. Some of it is not so good. There's a reordering going on. And we are going to see more of it. Watch in this year as we see more and more leaders move out and move in. 
before their time is finished. Watch as we see leaders step down. Watch as we see sin and corruption exposed. And watch as people come in from the outside who we'd never heard of before and step into positions of authority and responsibility. Watch as presidents and prime ministers don't finish their terms of office. Watch as corruption and sin are exposed. And we see it here in 1 Samuel 13 because Saul is so concerned about pleasing people. Samuel the prophet tells him, Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you haven't kept the Lord's command. He says, Saul, you might have the position, you might have the title, but God isn't with you anymore. God has already moved on to the next. And there's a young guy that you have never heard of and he's in a field looking after sheep and he's fighting off the land and the bear and I've already called him to be king. And what we're going to see is the unknowns, the people who are obscure, the people who are nameless and faceless step into positions of authority and responsibility. And we're going to say, where did they come from? They've come from the wilderness and they've come from obscurity where God has been preparing them in the hidden place. We're going to see outsiders rise to prominence. God is looking for leaders who aren't tainted and corrupted, who will make hard decisions, who will deal with what needs to be dealt with, who will fight the battles that needs to be fought. That is my third word. I keep hoping these are going to get better, but this one doesn't. Uh, confrontation. Hang in there, folks. Hang in there. We'll have communion soon. I'm glad it's not real wine today, because after this... I've joked before, and I realized this again yesterday. I know why the duty free straight after the check-in at the airport. This feels a little bit like that this morning. 14.1. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul's son, Jonathan, is just sick of sitting around doing nothing. He looks at his armor-bearer, which is essentially his young servant. He didn't actually have any armor at this point. And he says, Come with me, let's just do something. Nothing is going to get better when we're doing nothing. We're just delaying the inevitable. We can pretend everything's okay, but the Philistines are the Philistines are going to keep popping up their heads saying we haven't gone away, you know. And so we need to do something because actually we're just kicking the ball down the field and eventually we're going to have to deal with this. And notice it says he didn't tell his father. Why? Because he knew his dad wouldn't let him go. Because by this stage his dad's greatest mission and goal is maintenance. It's to hold on to what he has. It's to manage what he has. And in the church we see that actually at the minute. The goal is maintenance. The goal is management. And I mean worldwide in the church. It is to try and get back what we lost over the last three years. It's to try and get people back who, who are no longer around. It's to, try and, it's to try and maintain what we have. It's to make sure we don't hurt people or offend people because we can't afford to lose any more people. And at this point Saul's greatest goal is to maintain the status quo, to keep his head down and just avoid stirring things up. And the last thing he needs is Jonathan stirring things up. Saul's playing not to lose, he's not playing to win. Jonathan, on the other hand, knows that nothing happens until something happens, until someone does something. And the best way to change your circumstances is to take action, to confront what needs to be confronted, to do something. Even if it's risky, even if it's uncomfortable, even if no one else is doing it, even if it might not work. And you know, in our own lives, there's some things we just need to confront. I think we're living in a time of confrontation. We see it on a world scale, and of course, some of that's horrendous where we see innocent loss of life. But sometimes confrontation is good because nothing changes until some things are confronted head on. 
In life, we all tend to avoid conflict and confrontation. Like, none of us really enjoy confrontation. If you do, you're one of those people that I don't really want to be around. Like, anyone who loves conflict and confrontation isn't generally a fun person to hang out with. We want a quiet life. We do want drama. We try to avoid awkward or uncomfortable situations, and that's okay. But some things need to be confronted in our lives or nothing changes. In fact, some things just get worse and worse. And we bury our heads in the sand, but the problem doesn't go away. And I need to move on to the last point, but here's what I sense the Holy Spirit saying. I believe right now, at the beginning of 2023, there is a grace for confronting some of the things in our lives that we've been avoiding dealing with. For you, I believe there's a grace for confronting some of those things in your life that you've been avoiding. Those things that have been long-standing, those things that have been hindering you, those things that have been tormenting you, those things that have been you've been struggling with again and again. Can I say to you, the Lord is pointing out things in my life. As I've prayed into this, the Lord has shown me things in my life that he's saying, there's a grace right now for you to deal with that. Nothing major, don't worry, like I'm not doing anything. But there's just things in my heart, there's attitudes, there's, there's, there's things in my life that are just not how I want them to be. And I've been trying to kind of just go, well, it's fine. And the Lord is putting his finger on and he said, no, I want you to deal with those things right now. Because if you don't, they're not going away. And there is a grace right now, and I'm actually experiencing it as I've started to step into this. There is a grace right now to confront some things in your life. Some deep-rooted issues and some long-standing hindrances. I actually wrote this on Instagram a few days ago. And I'm just going to read it to you. There is a grace for lasting change. And I quoted the verse from John 5 where Jesus meets the guy beside the pool who's been there 38 years. And he says to him, do you want to get well? And I believe the Lord would ask some of us that today. Do you actually want your life to change? And then I wrote this. There's a grace right now to confront deep-rooted issues and long-standing hindrances. The Father wants you to be totally free so you can be the most effective and impactful for his kingdom in these important days. Look at what's coming to the surface, and some of you will have experienced this already. There's certain things already in this year that the Lord is putting his hand on, he's putting his finger on, and it's making you uncomfortable, but he's bringing it into the surface not to hurt you, but to heal you. And he's asking, do you want to get well? Don't miss the opportunity. Break the cycle, sever the cords, uproot the lies, restore the foundation, rebuild the walls. It may take fasting, prayer, deliverance, counselling, but you can find freedom and fulfilment in Christ. The gospel is always about change. The gospel is always about transformation. Christ came to give us new life. But I believe that there's particular seasons, just like there was here actually for Jonathan, where God is saying to you, I am with you and I will back you in this. If you will decide and determine in your heart, I don't want to live like this, I want to deal with this and do whatever you can, I, I will back you and you will have all of the backing of heaven in this. And my last word for 2023 is courage the last word is courage courage I read this a while ago and I may have said it here before I think it's brilliant for those of you who are over 40 according to today's regulators and bureaucrats 
Those of us who were kids in the 60s, 70s and early 80s probably shouldn't be alive right now. Because our baby cots were covered with brightly covered, coloured lead-based paint, which we chewed and licked. We had no childproof lids on medicine bottles. And when we rode our bikes, we wore no helmets. As children, we would go in cars with no seatbelts or airbags. We'd sit in the front passenger seat, or the boot, which was a special treat. We drank water from the garden hose and not from a bottle, and it tasted just the same. We ate chips. We had pudding every night. We drank fizzy juice with water in it, or fizzy juice with sugar in it. But we were never overweight because we were always outside playing. We shared one drink before friends from one bottle or can, and nobody actually died from it. We would spend several hours building go-karts out of scraps. <laughs> Pram wheels, remember that? Then go top speed down the hill only to find out we'd forgotten to make the brakes. After running into a wall or a patch of nettles a few times, we learned to solve the problem. We would leave home in the morning and play all day as long as we were back before dark. No one was able to reach us because there were no mobile phones and nobody cared. We didn't have PlayStations or Xboxes, no video games at all, no 99 channels on TV, no personal computers, no iPads, no social media. We had friends. We went outside and found them. We played hide-and-seek and rounders. We sometimes got hit in the head with a ball. We fell out of trees. We got cut and we broke bones, but there were no lawsuits. We walked to friends' homes. We also, believe it or not, walked to school as it was just around the corner. We made up games with sticks and tennis balls. We rode bikes in packs of seven and wore our coats only by the hood. The idea of a parent bailing us out if we did something wrong was unheard of because our parents actually sided with authority. Amen. This generation has produced some of the best risk takers, problem solvers and inventors ever. The last 50 years have seen an explosion of innovation and new ideas. We had freedom, failure, success and responsibility and we learned how to deal with it. And then the author says this. In a world that wants to wrap us all up in cotton wool and keep us from danger, Christians need to recover that sense of adventure. Not stupidity, but not allowing our lives to be controlled by fear. In a fearful world, world, God needs his men and women to be people of courage. Not stupidity, courage. Look at verses 6 and 7 in chapter 14. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. So Jonathan slipped off from his dad and the rest of the troops. He's had enough. He'd rather die fighting than spend his life hiding. He knows that a life controlled and consumed by fear is not how God wants us to live. So he says to his armor bearer, let's go over to this outpost, to those uncircumcised men. That's a bit personal, isn't it? It's like, how do you know? <laughs> we read stuff like that, we never ask the question. Like, what's he been doing? Peeping Jonathan? David, a few chapters later, remember when he's facing Goliath, says the same thing. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What is going on here? Do you know what it is? What is the mark of covenant between God and his people? Circumcision. Back in Abraham's day. The mark that said you are the people of Yahweh, the chosen people of God, loved and called by him was circumcision. I don't want to keep saying that word. I'm feeling uncomfortable even myself here. But when he says you're an uncircumcised Philistine, do you know what he's saying? He's saying you are not people of the covenant. That's what he's saying. 
Every time you see that, what he's saying is, we're covenant people, you're not. And as covenant people, we should not be contained. As covenant people, we should not be afraid. As covenant people, we should not tolerate this. Because we are God's people and God backs his people. God loves everyone, but not everyone is God's child. He loves the world, but not everyone is his child. I love all the kids in Elijah's school. I love all the kids in our street, but I have one son. And I will back him before any of them any day of the week. And if any of them touch him, I'll tell tell him to punch them Um, honestly I will back my child because he's my child I love all the rest I care about all the rest but I have one child God loves the world but he's got his children and his children have a special place in his heart that everyone else doesn't have and God says if you're my child you're called you're loved you're chosen you're empowered and I will back you I am with you I am for you and I will back you That's their truest identity. And yet they're behaving just like everyone else. Church, we are God's people. And we need to stop being thrown around by the news headlines and by all the negativity in our world, just like everyone else is. You are not ordinary. You were bought at a price with the precious blood of Jesus. You have a Father in heaven who loves you more than you could ever imagine. And he is with you. He is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And no matter what we face in 2023, no matter how many shortages there are, no matter how much turmoil there is, or upheaval, or or financial stuff going on, or leadership stuff going on, I want to say to you that your God is with you, your God is for you, and none of this takes him by surprise. He is not on the throne in heaven going, oh my goodness, what do I do? He is seated, he is sovereign, he is Lord, and he is with you, and you are his son, and you are his daughter, and you have nothing to fear. We need to be a people of courage. This world is getting darker. The church will come under pressure. There will be more persecutions. You know, we talked about this last week and I said yes and amen to that. I believe it. And you know what I think, honestly? Bring it on. Because the, sh- the church never shines brighter as when they're under pressure. They thought they would crush the church in China by persecuting them. And they went from 1.5 million to 100 million in about 30, 40 years. God wants to show the world that he is with his people. He wants to show up and he wants to show off. And he wants to demonstrate that he is with you and he is for you. Look at what Jonathan says. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord by saving, whether by many or by few. He says, I know God can do it. I'm not even certain he will, but I know he can. I am not completely convinced that everything's going to work out, but I know that the Lord is able to sort this out. I know that the Lord is able to give me victory here. I know that the Lord is able to stop that speaker from making a noise behind me right now. I know you are, Lord. Help me out here. Or I know the sound desk are. Faith isn't knowing that everything's going to work out. Faith is believing in the nature and character of God and saying, no matter what happens, I know he is with me. I know he is for me. Jonathan Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will save us. In other words, I'm not 100% sure, but perhaps he will. 
And sometimes God will call you to do something and you'll be like, ah, I need more guarantees. I need more certainties. I need to put 55 fleeces down. I need the angels river dancing the duvet backwards tomorrow morning. No, God would just say, if I have told you to do it and I've made it clear, just do it. And I am with you. And I am for you. And I believe that the Lord would say to you some right now that maybe all you have is a perhaps. Perhaps it'll work out. Perhaps our marriage can be better. Perhaps I can deal with this issue in my heart. Perhaps I can resolve this situation. Perhaps we can make this change. And I believe that if you will take a step of faith, all of heaven will fall in behind you. Go on. She's like a ninja. Look at this. <laughs> Dressed in black. Huh? You wouldn't even see her. So you wouldn't. Oh, look at that. Huh? <laughs> yep. Yeah. When you take a step of faith, God empowers you. <laughs> Guys, I'm not saying everything's going to be easy. I'm not saying everything's going to work out. You know, when we went to Dublin, we told Paul Reid, and his words were, are you mad? When we were going. We told Alan Scott of the vineyard, and his words were, are you mad? We told my parents, and their words were, are you mad? And we were, but God had spoken to us. And I'm not saying it was easy. I've talked about that a lot. It wasn't easy. But God blessed us. Because God always blesses obedience. God always blesses your obedience. Even if it's not easy, God blesses obedience. And God's supernatural power is waiting to come behind you when you choose to obey. All of heaven backs you up. And look at what we see here. I'm going to finish right now in 60 seconds. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind them. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. All because they were willing to say, I'm not tolerating this any longer. Everything might not work out, but we believe that this is not the way God's people are meant to live. And so we're going to do something. And in 2023, and Jenny alluded to this, and she didn't know what I was speaking on. In 2023, I believe God is calling us, particularly some of us, to step up again and to step out in faith. I really do. I believe some of us have got stuck because we've settled. And I believe God is saying to you, I'm calling you out into deeper water again. And your life has become boring and predictable and you're fighting this Christian thing just isn't the, the abundant life that the Bible says it is. Do you know why? It's because you've got stuck where you are. And I believe God is... And I actually really believe this is for some of the older people in the congregation. Really believe that, as I was praying this week, that some of the older people in the congregation who have retired, who have settled, God has actually said, I have not finished with you yet. Not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. The Bible says in the Psalms, you will bear fruit in old age. And I really believe God wants to stretch some of us this year. He wants to make us uncomfortable. He wants us to take a risk and watch and see what God will do in you and through you. I want to finish with something I read in a book by a guy called Mark Batterson. It says, quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-ordained passions. 
Go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention. Keep asking questions. Keep making mistakes. Keep seeking God. Stop pointing out problems and become part of the solution. Stop repeating the past. Start creating the future. Stop playing it safe. Start taking risks. Expand your horizons. Accumulate experiences. Find every excuse you can to celebrate everything you can. Live like today is the first day and last day of your life. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshipping what's right with God. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Worry less about what people think and more about what God thinks. Don't try to be who you're not. Laugh at yourself. Don't make a living, make a life. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. Quit making excuses. Quit playing defence. Quit holding out. Quit holding back. Quit running away. And quit putting eight foot ceilings on what God can do.